Isaiah prophesying during very dark days in, in the nation of Israel's history uh, was talking about the coming of the new King David. Uh, the one who was going to come would actually uh, surpass uh, the original King David, and he would be the one who would minister and, and rule and reign in righteousness and in power and in wisdom and in knowledge, and uh, that, that his influence uh, and his word would spread all over the entire world. So we looked at that promise, and we asked the question, is, is that really the case? Has that promise come true? As we look around the world, we see uh, the reality of the situation. We might be tempted to doubt uh, whether or not God is going to fulfill that promise or whether he has uh, begun to or whether he's forgotten he even made the promise in the first place. Uh, if you go on and read the Gospels in the New Testament, you see very clearly uh, that Jesus claims to be that king who was promised in Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, that, that 500 plus years before Jesus came, when Isaiah said there's one who's going to come and rule and reign, when Jesus entered the scene, he said, I'm the guy. And I want all of you to trust in me. The apostles uh, believe that and continue to teach it as you read through the, uh, the epistles of the New Testament. You see this idea that Jesus, one of the roles that Jesus fulfills is the role of the king. He is he's the true David in every sense of the word. Now, if that's accurate, if, if Jesus is who he said he was, and the apostles' endorsement of that is correct, uh, then my question, I guess, as we, as we look at those passages of Scripture is, well, what gives? <laughs> How can what we read in the Old Testament in Isaiah be true in the person of Jesus? As I look at the world around me, I don't see a world filled with righteousness. I don't see people whose, whose lives have been so radically changed that God's kingdom has actually come on earth in all of its fullest form. As you do, I read the newspaper, I look on the internet, I read the headlines, and problems abound. When's the last time you read a headline that offered good news? When's the last time that you picked up a newspaper and you couldn't find any, any problems or any struggles or any issues? Uh, all you found were, were happy, joyful tidings. How can Jesus be the king that Isaiah promises, this king of wisdom and might and equity, who will rule the world with, re, with righteousness? How can that be true? Because it doesn't seem to match up with reality. If I had to list my top favorite ten movies of all times, one of them would be uh, The Princess Bride. Uh, maybe you've seen that movie. If you haven't seen that movie, you should see that movie. It is a tremendous movie. It's a movie you can watch with your kids, uh, and it's got a lot of redemptive uh, qualities, but it's just very funny as well. There's a scene in The Princess Bride uh, where Vicini is trying, the character of Vicini is trying to start a war between these two kingdoms. And the way he's going to start the war is he's, he's kidnapped the princess from one of the kingdoms, and he's going to murder her, and he's going to frame it on the other nation. And so they're going to, they're going to go to war against each other. And he's got this perfect plan hatch, and he's executing it uh, brilliantly. In the midst of that plan, they're sailing away from the one kingdom, having kidnapped the princess, and one of his partners, one of the guys, the lackeys that works for him, Inigo Montoya, keeps looking behind the ship and saying, I think there's somebody following us. I think there's somebody who's figured out the plan. And Vicini keeps saying, inconceivable. It's inconceivable that anybody would know where we are. And he, and he says five or six times in about two minutes, that's just inconceivable. And Montoya looks at him and he says, you keep using that word inconceivable. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and as I look at the scriptures and I see Isaiah saying, there's a king that's coming that's going to exercise wisdom and 
right and righteousness. And he enters the stage, when he enters history, it will never be the same. And I look at the world around me, and I'm tempted to say to Isaiah, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Let me give you a proposition this morning that we're going to consider as we look at the reality of Christmas present. And the proposition goes like this. It goes like this. Well, I'll read it to you and maybe it'll pop up on the screen in a minute. To thrive in the reality of Christmas present, Jesus' disciples must embrace the ongoing and unfolding plan of God's salvation, which has begun but is not yet complete. Let me read that to you one more time. To thrive in the reality of Christmas present, not to get by, not to just kind of stumble home, but to thrive as a disciple of Jesus in the reality of Christmas present, we must embrace the ongoing and unfolding plan of God's salvation, which has begun but is not yet complete. In other words, we live in a time that theologians call the now but not yet. Jesus has come and he has established his rule and his reign. But if anybody who's honest is going to admit and look around, we would have to say it's not complete. Jesus has not yet done all that he's going to do when it comes not only to salvation, but to his righteous reign on earth. And so we need to understand that it is an ongoing process. It is an unfolding process that God isn't asleep at the switch. He hasn't forgotten uh, to, uh, to do his work and to bring about his promises, but rather in the timing of it, uh, it has begun. It began with the first advent of Jesus. It began as Christ hung on the cross, as Jesus was raised from the dead, but it is not yet complete. If we're going to thrive as disciples of Jesus in this day and age, we have to understand that. And so Paul, uh, we're going to look at a passage this morning, 2 Corinthians. Paul embraces Jesus as the embodiment of Isaiah's prophecy. But he also helps us understand this tension of living kind of in the now, but not yet, and the reality of Christmas present. So with that in mind, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 7 through 18. Uh, You can follow along in your own Bibles or follow along on the screen. Uh, Hear the word of God. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is, uh, it is for all your sake, so that as grace extends more and more people may increase, uh, more and more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outward nature is wasting away and our inward nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." 
This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we, uh, we have sung, O come all you faithful, uh, we've called others uh, alongside us to, to come and to worship. Uh, we have said, uh, sung, go tell on the mountain, go proclaim that Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is born. Because of that, we sing joy to the world. The Lord has instituted his eternal rule and reign in this kingdom through the person of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we, uh, we know these songs. We've, we've known them all of our lives. We sung them growing up. We sing them again this morning. And yet, Father, we, uh, we know in the depths of our hearts sometimes we doubt that message, that there really is joy that has come into the world, that there really is a peace that has been planted that will take root and will grow forever. Father, we, we struggle sometimes in understanding that you do have a plan and your timing is perfect. And that just as Isaiah prophesied, your work of salvation is coming about. Yet, Father, we live in a, in a tension. And that you have not instituted the complete and total reign of Jesus yet. Uh, this is an unfolding plan. It is a plan that it takes shape generation after generation and will do so until the Lord Jesus returns. And so, Father, sometimes I admit I struggle in living in the reality of here and now with a faith that understands the big picture. So, Father, that's my prayer this morning for all of us is perspective. It's an understanding of your time, your plan, and how it, it isn't just on the pages of Scripture, but how it actually speaks into the reality of our lives today, this morning, right here, as we're gathered together at Green Tree Community Church. So, Father, I pray that this word would come alive to us, that it would live and breathe in our souls, and that it would speak into the depths of our heart. Lord, what I have to say is, is of no importance. Father, I can't do this passage justice. It is your perfect word. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would... Uh, forgive my sin that you would uh, empower me uh, by your immeasurable power and that we would see the glory of Jesus this morning and the reality that is really in Christmas present. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to offer you three observations. This is a fairly long text with a lot of information in it. I'm not going to try and pick it all apart. I'm not going to try and, and give you every little uh, piece of it. I would encourage you to, to read it uh, in the next week and absorb it for yourself. As I've read it uh, this week and I've studied it, uh, it's become uh, more and more uh, abundantly clear to me that we need this kind of passage for this particular day and age because it speaks to the truth that sometimes we don't see. Uh, if you've ever been in a, in a set of circumstances where you're uh, maybe with a group of people and everybody is kind of talking and sharing a couple jokes and they're inside jokes and they know what's going on and you don't, uh, you're kind of on the outside looking in. That's kind of how I've, I felt as I started at this text. I'm like, there's a lot of rich information here and I kind of feel like I'm on the outside looking in. But as I studied it throughout the week, I kind of felt like I got a little bit on the inside and it was extremely uh, both encouraging for me and challenging for me as well. And I hope I can pass some of that on to you this morning in these three observations about what it means to live in the reality of Christmas present 
The first one, and, and maybe the most simple, but I think probably the most important as a foundation is found in verse 7 where Paul says, we have this treasure, and he's talking about the presence of God. He's talking about the gospel that's impacted his life and changed him. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, we used uh, this particular verse on Vision Sunday. If you're wondering why you've heard it recently, you heard it back in, in mid-November. Uh, when we uh, when we celebrated all that God's doing at Green Tree, and one of the things that we said that morning is that that God gets the glory because it's what He's doing through us. We're not the ones who initiate His work; He's the initiator. We simply are the vessels through which it flows. And I just want to remind you of that again this morning: that our confidence is in God, not in ourselves. My confidence is not in me; my confidence is in God. Paul talks about this surpassing power, and that term that Paul uses is a very unique term. You need to understand what he's talking about there. Paul is talking about creation power. Paul is talking about Genesis 1. Paul's going back to the very beginning when it said, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Paul says, that's the power that's residing within me. That's the power that's residing within you as a disciple of Jesus. It's the very power of God. He also then goes in a radically different direction, and he says, we have this treasure, this treasure, this surpassing power of God, but it's in clay pots. And Paul uses a term there that, that's for everyday dishes. Uh, and he's talking about his own body. He's talking about his own life. And he says, I'm just an ordinary, regular guy. There's nothing special or significant about me apart from Christ and the power of Christ that resides in me. Uh, if you are in our home and you're standing in our kitchen, we have these cabinets that stop short of the ceiling. They stop about this, this far short of the ceiling. And Cindy, uh, over the years, has collected uh, a whole bunch of decorative bowls. And, you know, they're, they're like big mixing bowls, but you can't ever use them. I found that out one time when I used one of the bowls. They're decorative bowls. So we haven't made that mistake twice. But you look at our kitchen, there's probably, I don't know, eight or ten of those kind of lining, and they look kind of cool. And they're the kind of thing that are kind of subtle because you're not always looking there, but you see them, oh, they're kind of neat. Uh, but they're decorative. You, don't, you can't do anything with them. You're not supposed to mess with them. The word that Paul uses to describe how the Spirit of God resides in us is not decorative bowls, okay? It's Tupperware. It's the stuff that you actually take down and use every day. Now, the great thing about Tupperware is just that. I don't get in trouble when I use Tupperware. I don't, you know, I don't get fussed at because I wasn't supposed to use the good Tupperware. There's no such thing as good Tupperware. There's no such thing as Tupperware that's, that's hands-off, so to speak. And so while I am thankful that, uh, that we have the decorative bowls... <laughs> I'm thankful that Paul uses this kind of terminology because it says to me, God's going to use me. God's going to influence my life with his Holy Spirit. With the, literally the power that brought the universes into being is going to reside in, in my little Tupperware life, and great things are going to happen because of that. Do you understand that the reality of Christmas present is that God wants to use your life through his power to make a radical difference in this world. So our confidence is in God, verse 7. That's the first observation of this text. The second one is this. I think we need to have a proper perspective of the disciples' struggles. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. 
after Paul talking about the surpassing power, he makes a kind of a list of, of his experiences. And he says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. A couple of things here. First of all, I love the fact that Paul readily admits hardship. Paul doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, you know, if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be great. All your business deals will work out. You'll be the straight-A student in school. You'll be the best-looking one. You'll, you know, whatever. Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't preach what we would call a prosperity doctrine. He doesn't say, you know, come to Jesus and you have no more problems. Paul actually admits these hardships. Look at the words he uses in these verses. He says that disciples of Jesus are afflicted. They are perplexed. They are persecuted, and they are struck down. Now, I'm not going to read it, but if, you might want to make a note in, if, you're, if you're taking notes. Go back to 1 Corinthians 4 and start in verse 11 and read about the, the practical reality of, of this which he's speaking in these verses. Uh, Paul was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was, he was literally had people stoned him, picked up rocks, and threw it at him until they actually thought he was dead. They thought they had killed him, and they walked away. Uh, so that's, that's how badly he was, he was stoned. Uh, he was put in prison unjustly. Uh, he was beaten. And again, this, this list is unbelievable. But when Paul admits these hardships, he knows about that which he speaks. Paul has suffered tremendously and has faced an incredible number of challenges for the sake of following Jesus. You can pick these apart. I'm just going to talk about one of them uh, in particular that stood out to me this morning. Uh, because it really has, uh, it, it caught my attention because I think of what I do for a living. The word perplexed. Paul says, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. I got to tell you, I really get frustrated with Christians who have the answer to every problem. Can I just admit that? I, I really get bothered when, when I'm talking to somebody and I'm pouring my heart out to them and I'm saying, you know, I've got this struggle. I have this, this set of circumstances. I'm not sure what to do with it. And they kind of look at me like, well, you know, if you were a good Christian, you would know all the answers just like me. The apostle Paul says, we are perplexed. Paul says, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I think Paul wrestled with, with, the, with living in the reality of Christmas present, like we're talking this morning. I think he looked at his life and he looked at all the, the marvelous things that happened, all the churches that were started, all the, all the great opportunities he had to minister in the name of Jesus. And I think he saw the, all the junk he had to put up with. Uh, with the new churches he started and the people that tried to mess up those churches, as well as the people who were attacking him for his faith. And I think he said, I don't get this. <laughs> Lord Jesus, why, why is it so hard? I don't know. But he wasn't driven to despair. I told you what I didn't like. You know what I really love? I love a Christian who will come alongside me and say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I don't know why you're going through what you're going through. I don't have a crystal ball. God didn't give me one. God didn't show me the future. He didn't, he didn't explain to me why you're going through that illness. I don't know why your, your business failed. I don't understand why you're having such a hard time with your kids. I don't, I don't know all those answers. I, I don't have all those insights. But I know this. I know that we don't need to despair because God is a good and gracious God, and we can trust in him. Friends, the church needs Christians who are perplexed but don't despair. Yeah, I could talk about all four of those other ones. I won't, but I would encourage them for your, for your study. Paul readily admits his hardship, but he also readily admits his fortitude despite the challenges. Look at the flip side of those four words. Afflicted, but what? Not crushed. 
We're perplexed, but we don't despair. We're persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. Paul says, I know it's tough. (laughs) I'll gladly talk to you about my hardships, but you know what? We don't give up. Not for a minute. We're struck down. We get back up. I think of the, the movie Cool Hand Luke uh, and, the, and the, uh, the prisoner in the, in the, in the uh, uh, cell played by Paul Newman. And early on in the movie, he gets in a fight with the biggest guy in the camp, and he keeps knocking him down to the point where the, the big guy who keeps knocking him down feels bad for him. And he says, why don't you just stay down? Just stay down. I don't want to hit you anymore. And Luke keeps getting back up. Why? Because he's not going to quit. And Paul says, I'm not quitting. There ain't any quitting me. Am I going to get knocked down? Absolutely. Am I going to have questions that I can't answer this side of heaven? No, no doubt about it. But my fortitude in the journey will not give up. When, uh, when our son Nathan, uh, the summer between his junior and his senior year of college, he went to officer candidate school for the Marine Corps. And they have a website you can go to, and they've got a photographer that goes around Quantico during those 10 weeks and takes pictures. And so you can go and you can look on the website and see if you can see uh, your, your kid or, or your friend or whoever uh, going through the training, which didn't look like a whole lot of fun to me. Uh, but on the website for the Marine Corps, they've got this little phrase that keeps going across the screen as you're looking at these guys, you know, crawling through mud and, and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And it says this, Pain is just weakness leaving the body. Pain is just weakness leaving the body. Now, I looked at that website. There was a lot of pain leaving. (laughs) There was a lot of weakness leaving. Those guys were going through a hard time. But you know what I think? I think Paul would kind of have that same perspective. My pain is just my weakness leaving the body. It's my spiritual weakness. So places where I struggle, the places where I don't get it all the time, but I know if I hang in there, I know the big picture, and I know that God will see me through. Do you have confidence in God instead of yourself this morning? Do I have a perspective, a proper perspective that says disciples will struggle? We're not exempt from it, but do I have the perspective of understanding that Jesus Christ is leading me and it gives me a fortitude, it gives me a perseverance that allows me to keep on going? That's my second question or second observation. My third one is this. I believe that in this passage, we see a striving for a mature faith in the Lord Jesus a striving for a mature faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul, in the verses that we're going to look at in verses 13 through 18, Paul is not saying, here's what it takes to be a mature disciple of Jesus. Paul isn't giving us a laundry list and saying, okay, are you doing all these things? Are you you thinking in this manner? Is your heart geared in this direction? But rather, he's speaking about his life and speaking about his attitude and his approach to his relationship with Christ that I think demonstrates a maturity of faith. So I want to tell you this morning what I see in Paul and what I hope to see in my life and what I hope to see in your life as well if you are a disciple of Jesus. The first one is found in verse 13. Verse 13 says this, Since we have, excuse me, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, and he quotes Psalm 116, I believe and so I spoke, We also believe, and so we also speak. The first aspect of maturing faith that Paul demonstrates for us as he he lives out his life in, in his letter to the Corinthians is a fundamental trust in and witness for Jesus. A fundamental trust in and witness for Jesus. He uses these words, I believe. That's a fundamental trust. If you believe something, it means that you trust that it is true. And so Paul says, I am believing this faith that we have, 
that Christ has died for our sins, that Jesus' work on the cross actually puts me in right relationship with God, that when he rose from the dead, that resurrection, which we'll see in just a few minutes, now is going to invade my life and give me an eternal hope and an eternal life or an everlasting life, I should say. That perspective, Paul says, I believe that. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just a fundamental trust, but it's also a witness for Christ. He says, I believe, therefore I speak. Because I believe, I'm going to tell you what I believe. Because I've been so impacted by this, I'm going to share it with other people. Anybody in here ever heard of earwax candles? Anybody? Oh, we got a, we got a few in the cult. Okay. My wife, Cindy, I love her to death. She uh, discovered earwax candles about 15 years ago in our marriage. An earwax candle is about that long. And what you do, this is going to sound, I, I almost didn't put this in the sermon. Like, you people are going to fire me. But um, you lay your head down sideways and you put this candle in your ear. So it's sticking out about eight inches, right? And then you light it on fire. And it works like a chimney flue as it, bur- as it burns down and it pulls all the extra stuff out of your ear. And you take it out and you're like, wow. <laughs> I can hear you. You can get them at River City Market down on South Kirkwood Road. They're like three bucks for two of them. So everybody go out and have, a, have an earwax candle experience this afternoon. The re- <laughs> We're like, what is he talking about? I think I've probably told about six people this week about earwax candles. I have, I have no idea why. I don't know how the topic came up. Maybe I said something and they couldn't hear. And I'm like, you know, you always say, you ought to clean your ears out. There's actually a way to do that now. So I'd say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you run down to River City and get some ear? I bet I told six people this week that, that, about that, that wonderful product. I think I told one person this week about Jesus. You get my point. If I believe in something... I'm going to talk about it. If I believe in a product, I'm going to say, you ought to try this product, right? It's pretty simple. If I believed in Jesus, I think there comes a point where I start to talk about him. I don't don't understand, and I put myself in this category, but I don't understand how disciples can be so quiet about Jesus. If what we believe is really true, friends, it's earth-shaking. It's history-changing. It changes people's lives forever and ever, and ever. And I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip this morning. I just am pointing out that, that, that what I see in Paul is a maturity of faith that says, I believe, I'm, I'm rock solid on what I know, but I also speak. I want that kind of maturing faith in my own life. Verse 14, we see the, the second, I'm going I'm to give you four aspects of this maturing faith. The second one's found in verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says this, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The second aspect of a mature faith is a resurrection conviction. There's a resurrection conviction. It simply means this. I know the end of the story. I don't know all the details between now and then. I don't know if I'll live for another day or another decade or another uh, two decades, 20. I don't know that. I know the Lord knows the, the time of my life. He's got that all worked out. He also has worked out what happens after this life. After my sojourn on earth, I'm going to be in his presence. Why? Because the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And that conviction tells me that I'm safe. Regardless of the storms of life, regardless of the circumstances that come my way, no matter how temporally speaking, earth-shattering they may be, and friends, I know that we're faced with lots of issues. I know that there are people in this congregation who are struggling mightily with physical health, with marriages, with relationships, with business. These are very real issues in our lives. But you know what? When you stop and you step back and you say, Jesus paid the price 
so that I can have an everlasting relationship with God. It gives you a peace. It gives you a way to look at life. And it allows you to, to risk, really, without risking at all. It allows you to step out of faith and say, you know what, I'm going I'm to follow Jesus in this set of circumstances, whatever it may be. And your friends around you who don't know Christ might say, you know what, you're a knucklehead. What, what are you thinking? Why would, why would you live that way? <laughs> why? Well, it's because I know I'm convicted that the truth of the resurrection is real. And I'm going to order my life accordingly. I'm going to make the decisions of my life. I'm going to set my priorities on the fact that Jesus Christ was raised for the dead. And he did that. God did that in him. Why? So that he will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Striving for a maturing faith means a fundamental trust and a witness. It also means a resurrection conviction. And thirdly, it means a courage even in what seems to be contradiction, a courage and contradiction. Look at verse 16. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Paul says, you look at, you look at the outside, you look at the flesh, you, know, you, look at, you look at the body, and it seems to be uh, wasting away. And, and that's what happens, right? Uh, you, you, as you get older, uh, I haven't started wasting away yet. I've been going the wrong direction, but eventually <laughs> my body's going to begin doing that. Uh, by the way, those of you that are sending me all those encouraging notes about not eating candy, thank you very much. I've made it two weeks uh, so far. I've got two more weeks to go before little Katie and I have our little conversation. Uh, but our outward nature, eventually our heart gives out. Eventually our eyes give out. Eventually our ears give out. Eventually we, we, we can't you know, uh, speak quite as, as much as we could. Uh, our memory uh, begins to fade uh, a little bit. Those types of things happen as we get older. No one is surprised by this. But at the same time that's happening, at the same time I can't, can't do quite as much as I used to, the inside of my life, the spiritual condition of my life is actually growing. It's actually moving in the opposite direction. There's a movie coming out. I'm talking about movies, movies a lot this morning. There's a movie coming out on Christmas Day, and Brad Pitt is in it. And I can't remember the title. It's The Particular, Peculiar Life of, of Somebody. I can't think of the name. But the whole premise of the movie is that when this baby is born as an infant, it's actually, uh, he's, he's born um, like 90 years old. And he goes backwards through life. He gets younger as he goes. It's going to be fascinating to see how that storyline turns out. But... Uh, you think about that in the, in the realm of our faith, and that's what happens. You, you get younger, in a sense. You get more vibrant. You, you grow in Christ. Everybody's trying to stay young on the outside, and I'm not sure why, because there's no hope for the outside. But we're wasting away there. That's inevitable. Death eventually catches up with all of us, but, but not disciples. We don't, we don't live for, for the flesh, but rather, rather we live for the kingdom of God. And we understand that, that although the new king's rule may not yet be complete and it's unfolding and it's ongoing, it's growing in my life. And so I look at, I look at the struggles I face physically. I see what seems to be maybe a bit of a contradiction, but then I look at what God is doing in my heart and it gives me courage to face the day. I can get old and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get old and die someday. No big deal. It's passing from one life to the next. It gives us a sense of courage. And then uh, my last observation on a growing and maturing faith in Christ, as I see it in Paul's uh, writings here, I simply would call it enthusiastic endurance. Look at verses 17 uh, and 18. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comp comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul has what I call an enthusiastic endurance. And the reason I call it that is this. In verse 17, he says, the slight and momentary affliction. Now think about that for just a second. That's a nice, cute little phrase. Slight and momentary affliction. What were Paul's slight and momentary afflictions? Getting the, getting the snot kicked out of them. Getting shipwrecked. Being thrown in jail without, without any cause. Being, have people throw rocks at him and try to kill him. A slight and momentary affliction for me is a hangnail. You know, I don't know that I could, I could go there with Paul. And yet his attitude is one of, this is no big deal. It will pass just like that. And I want to say, are you kidding? <laughs> this is nothing to you? Paul, how can you possibly have that perspective? How can you look at all the junk in this world? How can you look at all the suffering? How can you look at all the, the struggle in your own life, much less the, the, the rest of the world, and say that this is nothing? And that comes in the second part of verse 17. Some of the, I think, the very best words in Scripture and the whole Bible and words that I can't begin to explain to you this morning. For the slight and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul said, I, I look at what's coming. And all this is doing today is getting me ready for what's going to happen an eternal weight of glory. Friends, I can't begin to put words on that. I don't know how to explain to you what those words mean. Our everlasting dwelling with God is going to be so amazing <laughs> that even if you live the life that Paul lived, <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he ended up dying for his faith, he ended up dying in Rome for his faith, even if that happens to you, it's nothing compared to what God has planned for you forever and ever and ever. And so I believe, friends, that Paul demonstrates here an enthusiastic endurance. He's not going to limp home. <laughs> He's not going to just barely cross the finish line. He's not going to apologize to anybody for being a disciple of Jesus. He is going to take his flag and he is going to plant it in the earth and he's going to stand by it and die by it if he must. But he is going to endure to the end and he's going to do it with a smile on his face and a song in his heart despite his circumstances because of the eternal weight of glory that he knows is his. The truth of the reality of Christmas present is that there's a lot of crummy stuff going on in the world. No question about it. Read about a mom killing her daughter, two-year-old daughter this week. My goodness. How can, how can something be that evil? But the slight and momentary pain that we feel, that we wrestle with, that we struggle with, in our relationships with others, our marriages, kids, our jobs, are all under the context of the true reality, which is there is a glory that is awaiting us. Jesus is king. He is ruling. It might not be completely inaugurated. And we live in the tension that our faith puts us into conflict. It puts us at odds with the priorities of a fallen, broken world. But now is our opportunity. 
Now is our time. This is our generation. It's a chance for you and me to follow Jesus with enthusiasm and excitement and courage and conviction with a fundamental trust and bear witness to him. It's our opportunity to have the perspective of, yes, there's struggle, but there's a kingdom that awaits that makes it well worth it. Our confidence, therefore, is in God and not in ourselves. So brothers and sisters, live in the reality of Christmas present. Let's pray.